On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about road construction because it is that time of year, don't you know? And you are going to find yourself in all likelihood if you're driving around Hamilton affected by it. We'll help you out with that a little bit. Also, about adoption. You may not know that if you adopt a child in this country, you get less leave time than if you have a child. Doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when you consider what adoptive parents are doing. And, of course, we'll be chatting about the Toronto Blue Jays, less about the team than about the executive and the folks making decisions there. Some days you can only scratch your head and wonder what they're thinking. We'll talk about that. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. They say that in Canada there are four seasons, fall, winter, spring, and construction. You've heard that before, right? Of course you have. Uh, It may not feel yet like summer, but apparently it is because uh, construction season is now upon us. It is that time of year that the heavy machinery is being pulled out and some things are going to be fixed around the city, roads-wise we're talking about here, which is going to create some traffic issues. That's just how it works. Close a road, chew up a road, you got to drive somewhere else. Red Hill Creek Expressway is about to be fixed up. Uh, Cannon Street, for quite a long stretch along Cannon, is going to be fixed up. Lock Street, a chunk of Lock Street, is going to be affected. Uh, This will probably affect you. I want to bring in the General Manager of Public Works for the City of Hamilton, Dan McKinnon. Dan, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm well, although, you know what, when this starts this week, uh, you must love the complaints that come every year as soon as the machinery comes out and the roads get chewed up and everyone decides they can't get where they're going and they blame you. Yeah, I don't know. Enjoy is the word I'd be looking for, but it's, uh, I, I think that, you know, I understand people's frustrations with it when you're uh, in your car and you want to get somewhere, you just want to get there. But I think it's a, uh, it's a good thing that the uh, city council's approved a, you know, a good budget for investing in our infrastructure. Cause we all know that, uh, that, 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 you know, rough roads, potholes there, that's the number one complaint that citizens have when we, uh, when we ask them. So doing our best to try to fix those things. Uh, before we get to those big ones, the last time I think you were on the show, we were, you mentioned the word, we were chatting about the horrible winter we were having and the effect it was going to possibly, probably have on the roads, potholes and everything else. Did that bear out? Uh, it, it did. So uh, I think the last time we talked about potholes when it was really bad was in around January, February of 2018. And uh, certainly in the uh, later part of that winter and early spring of last year, we saw a significant amount of damage across the city, Main Street West, in front of McMaster University, down at uh, Burlington Street East, down by around Kenilworth Avenue in that area, Upper Sherman, uh, Rymo Road. We saw some pretty significant damage from that rough winter we had uh, a season and a half ago. But uh, we got ahead of some of that last year. Some of the extra money that council approved for road reconstruction and road rehab uh, through the 2018 budget actually uh, made its way over into this year, and that's what's actually funding the Cannon Street project this year. Okay, so uh, let's get to the three here. First of all, and I know it's been talked about on this station today. I know that uh, uh, in the morning and both this afternoon, the Red Hill Creek project was being discussed. Um, this is is this entirely to do is this at all to do with the problems concerns reports all those kind of things about the asphalt or is this part of that or is this none of that i would say it's coinciding with it scott uh, certainly we know from the uh you know the collision data that we've observed over the last number of years that uh, we've got a, a situation on the red hill where uh, the surface course there um, isn't providing the friction that we'd like to see it, it you know our analysis to date has not uh, indicated that it breaches the minimum design standards, but uh, we certainly 
Uh, we want to see it get replaced, and it, it is kind of coinciding with, uh, uh, I would say, a normal regime of resurfacing a facility of that nature. When the facility opened in 2007, uh, there was an expectation of uh, a certain amount of uh, daily traffic that it was going to see, and from day one, uh, the amount of traffic that we've seen on that uh, highway has uh, been significantly higher, so we expected that the surface course was going to wear out sooner uh, than maybe we would have liked. So it's 12 years. Um, it's about time and. So I guess, uh, you know, to kind of bring it together, I would just say it's coinciding with, uh, with the, uh, the other issue. Maybe a strange question, uh, because I know you always try to do this stuff right anyway, but considering the eyeballs and the attention that is on Red Hill and with the asphalt and everything else, does it put extra pressure on that this is all done absolutely perfectly? Uh, absolutely it does. And, and you know, that's, that's one of, the, one of the, the things that went into the consideration of closing the facility off completely. Um, we want to make sure that we nail this. And uh, in order to do that, by having no traffic and no distractions on the highway, uh, one of the things that we talk about is paving an echelon, which essentially just means having the pavers work side by side. You ensure that your the joint between the two lanes is a hot joint, uh, which is a much better way to build the road. So uh, we're also going to have a, you know, a significant regime around quality control and quality assurance on the project. We want to make sure that we absolutely nail this and that we, we deliver the best, uh, the best product we can. So uh, certainly appreciate the, uh, the traffic issues that's going to cause over the next three weeks and then uh, the subsequent three weeks for the southbound lanes. But, uh, you know, more than anything, I just want to, want to thank the community for, for the patience that I'm hoping they're going to have for us on this. And uh, by the time we hit July, we'll just be a bad memory. Not to be flippant about it, and I really don't mean this, but do you have someone then, when you talk about the quality control, do you have someone who is double and triple checking the asphalt to make sure that it's exactly everything you want? Because, I mean, again, these are the things, these are the questions that were raised. How do you do that quality control? Yeah, one of the things that, you know, your listeners may not uh, appreciate unless they're familiar with road construction is the on every project where we're paving, we have a consulting engineering firm that's hired directly by the city that has nothing to do with a contractor who comes on site and does the quality assurance testing. And they do everything from measuring the uh, temperature of the asphalt when it arrives to taking batches of the material right out of the trucks and taking it back to their laboratory and doing testing to um, uh, density meters that will measure the compaction of the material that's being placed on site. So. Uh, certainly, we're amping that up on this project for obvious reasons, and not just because of the uh, the most recent issues, but because it's a very unique facility for the city of Hamilton. The Red Hill and the Link are like uh, no other facilities that the city of Hamilton owns, so we would always put a higher level of uh, scrutiny around the uh, quality control testing on this highway. And uh, uh, we're certainly going to we're going to certainly make sure that we've uh, you know we've tested tested every aspect of it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Road construction season begins this week in the city of Hamilton. Joining me, General Manager of Public Works for the city, Dan McKinnon. Uh, we talked about the Red Hill Creek before the break, Dan. Uh, let's go to Lock Street because this is a this is a short little bit of construction, but this is a really busy street, obviously, now with a lot of businesses, a lot of small businesses, a lot of traffic along there. Uh, this is going to cause some inconvenience. How much do the businesses get in touch with you and say, can you make sure this hurries up and gets done really quickly? Because this is going to have some effect on us. Well, it, certainly they have a vested interest in this. And, you know, I want uh, to reinforce one message is that businesses are open on Lock Street and they will be open for the duration. So if anybody's considering going down there for dinner or any other reason to uh, frequent the businesses down there, please do so. 
Uh, we have uh, we're making sure that we're going to keep access to all of the uh, all of the businesses down there, and there's an arrangement for parking down there that's um, going to help as well. Um, we do have an upcoming closure that uh, is going to affect uh, a, a section of Lock Street. Uh, I think it's between Melbourne and um, Hunter Street. And uh, in order to facilitate that, there, there won't be any vehicular access between those two uh, limits of the construction. But pedestrian access is for the entire length. Uh, we're also converting some of the one-way streets around Lock Street to two-way for the duration of the closure. And we've got some extra parking that's been identified down there. So uh, I don't know if I'd say it's business as usual, but business is definitely open on Lock Street and will be for the duration of the construction. We have heard in the, now we're jumping to something else for just a second, but in the LRT debate, one of the comments that some of the critics have said all along is it's going to affect businesses. Uh, is this kind of, in a sense, a bit of a micro look at how this is going to work with the businesses when the LRT gets going? Yeah, Lock Street is probably a, a good example of that. The, the work that we're doing on Lock Street, we're replacing uh, some big diameter water mains, uh, some small diameter water mains. There's significant underground, very invasive type work that's happening down there, which would be very similar to what uh, a person would see on the LRT project. But again, I think there's um, you know there's a great opportunity for us to make sure that uh, we minimize the effect. There's no no question construction is very you know, it's very invasive. It's it's very messy. Um, but uh, I, I would say certainly over the length of my career, we're much better at trying to uh, ensure that we have as, as minimal uh, impact on the local residents and the local businesses as possible. And I think Lock Street's a good example of that. I, I know that uh, we're definitely having an effect on the businesses, but uh, I think it's been going pretty well so far. Has there been in recent years vast improvements in the technology around construction that can make it less impactful on those businesses or or, or speed up the proje- programs regardless? Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things that we uh, did on Lock Street that we do at a, on a variety of locations across the city is we use trenchless technology more so on the sewer side than we do on the on the water main side, but uh, we were in there last year doing some uh, some sewer lining, which is uh, a lot less invasive. We can access the sewer through the manholes. We can use robotic cameras and uh, uh, trenchless technology to basically reline the existing sewer with a polyurethane or a, a, some kind of polyvinyl uh, liners. And uh, so all that they see is a truck parked out there. There's uh, next to no excavating that happens. And, and at the end of the day, uh, you just see some vehicles parked on the side of the street. So the city's been, uh, I, I would say, at the forefront of investing and testing uh, trenchless technology, and um, it, it makes a big difference for people who are affected by the construction, and quite frankly, it delivers a product that we're very happy with. We think that we can have a lot of confidence in this type of uh, product once it's installed. The other one is on Cannon Street. It's a long one from James to Sherman. Um, the critics uh, of this one, or the vo- those who have been upset, largely have been those with the, the bike community. Because they say that the entire east-west bike lane is now being taken out of service for a big chunk of the city. How do you, when you're going along that long of a stretch of road and taking lanes out of service, how do you accommodate public transit, private cars, bikes, pedestrians, all the rest? Well, this this is a debate that is uh, certainly uh, growing uh, uh, more active every day as we start to see uh, the community change and the way that they want to get around the community. We have more people t- taking transit. Our uh, our, our most recent transit numbers indicate that we're uh, we're seeing growth in ridership. We certainly see a growth in the number of people that are using their their bicycles. And the more that we build biking lanes and we provide infrastructure for uh, different modes of uh, transportation, 
uh, the more we're going to affect them when we have to take them offline in order to repair them. Uh, I would say that you know when we get Cannon Street done, uh, the people who are going to use the uh, the cycle track there are going to be very pleased with the way that we leave it when it's done. But going back to my earlier comments, while we're there constructing, it's going to be very, very uh, messy. And uh, again, we'll do our best. We've got some detours that have been put in place for uh, for the cycle track and for uh, for the vehicles as well. But for people who uh, who still have to use it from a vehicular perspective, it is going to be slower this year. You know, the type of work that we do, this type of construction is, is, is very, very, uh, it's messy. And, uh, you know, we try to get in and out as quick as we can. And uh, uh, certainly with every project, we have lessons learned where we try to uh, to minimize the impact that we're having on the local residences and the businesses. We only have 30 seconds. This is a really stupid question, but why do we do this always in the summer? I mean, I, I, there's got to be a reason, and I'm assuming it's not just for the comfort of the workers. I, I mean, is it all to do with the, the temperature and everything else, or is there some other reason behind it? Yeah, I, I think in a single word, it's frost. Uh, you can't uh, you, you can't pave on top of frost. It's incredibly difficult to dig through frost. It, it's not conducive to uh, installing a good quality product when it comes to uh, putting down a granular better paving. So uh, the simple answer is frost. Dan McKinnon, general manager of Public Works. Oh man, don't yell at him. He he he. Don't blame him when you when you get stuck in traffic. I'll I'll, I'll go to bat for you, Dan. We'll we'll try to get the calls to settle down a little bit for you this season. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. <laughs> Dan McKinnon, appreciate the time. Uh, yeah, you will find uh, you will find some traffic problems around the city over the next little while, though. So prepare for those. Just don't be muttering obscenities under your breath. I mean, more than usual. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Being a parent, as many of you will know, most of you will know, is a huge job. And when I say most of you will know, it's because most of you have probably been parents or had a parent. I guess that covers everyone probably, right? Well, I think there is a very easy argument to be made that as much as we should appreciate and applaud and thank those who have raised their own kids, especially who have done it well, we should probably give an even bigger round of applause and more appreciation to those who have adopted kids. Because people do that for all kinds of reasons. They've been desperate to have a kid of their own and they couldn't, so they've decided to go that route. They've had great compassion for people who don't have parents, a uh, bit of both, whatever whatever the reason may be. But the fact that you would do that with a kid that is not biologically yours, I've always found that remarkable and laudable. So it's a bit surprising. It's more than a bit surprising. It's frankly shocking and enraging in a sense. When you read a story, a report that is out very recently, saying that adoptive parents in Canada are eligible for just nine months of leave when they adopt their child compared to 12 months for those who have their own kid. Not quite sure that I see the disparity or why the disparity exists or why it should exist. Dr. Carolyn McLeod is a professor of philosophy and women's studies at Western University. Uh, she is the lead author of this study, this report on this inequality. She joins us now. Dr. McLeod, thanks for doing this today. Oh, no problem. Uh, why is this? Do we know why this exists? Um, I think we, we don't really know for sure. Um, you know, the current system of benefits we have now, um, there are two types of benefits, maternity benefits and what are called parental benefits. And the maternity benefits are for women who are recovering from pregnancy and birth. And I think probably the main reason why um, we don't, adoptive parents don't get equal leave is that they don't recover from pregnancy or birth. So they don't qualify for those benefits. 
they simply qualify for the parental benefits. So that that's probably the best explanation at this point. Uh, I have not had a kid. I've, my wife has had a kid. I have not been there. But my recollection, mm-hmm. and I'm not disparaging women who have given birth in any way, but it generally doesn't take 12 months for a physical recovery from a birth. It, it certainly takes time. But I'm not sure that that fully answers. I, I get your answer, but I'm not sure that fully explains the disparity. Sure. I mean, I do think every pregnancy is different and some do take considerable amounts of time to recover. And there's also the, the element of lactation uh, factored in there. So, so you know, I think there are there is good reason for the maternity benefits. But what we argue is that there's equally good reason for for a, a adding a new class of benefits. And we want to call these attachment benefits that are available to adopted parents and also to those who provide kinship care or what's called customary care for children, which are just other forms of permanency that you can provide for a child in Canada. There are certainly lots of cases. I think probably most of us have heard of cases of specifically, particularly challenging cases with adoption. Um, someone who, a child who has fetal alcohol syndrome or a disability or some emotional trauma from somewhere back. I mean, those things, is that what you're talking about, that it's you're adding a layer of difficulty to some of these cases? Definitely. And, you know, what, what those experiences, you know, especially um, you know, the severing of a relationship with a birth parent, uh, multiple moves within foster care, these kinds of experiences can make attaching to a new adult as, as their parent a difficult process for these kids. So, so all of them tend to struggle with what, what is called attachment. And many have other, other challenges as well, and we talk about that in the report. But, but given how widespread the, the difficulty with attachment is, um, that, that's the reason why we want these, this new class of benefits, calling them attachment benefits. I mean, in some cases, and again, you've made a good case that, that there are certainly circumstances with with births, but in, it makes a case that in some cases you might need more time for the attachment with an adoptive parent. Sure. I mean, you know, what we argue for is, is at a minimum, the, the benefits that are available to these different types of parents should be equal. And, and it's, you know, interestingly, around the world, in most other countries, they are equal. So Canada is, is really an outlier and having, you know, significantly different um, amounts of benefits available to these families. So, so it, you know, at this, we're saying that at a minimum, they should be equal. It, it sure, I mean, one could try to launch an argument saying that, that these uh, people who provide permanency to kids who've had, you know, very difficult histories should have even more time off. But that's not, that's not the claim we're making. Do you think that people in this country think of adoption vastly differently from what, uh, biological birth? Do, do you think when they look at a parent of an adopted child, there's a big difference in how they perceive that person? I mean, I do think the reactions tend to differ. I mean, I, you know, I can speak from my own personal experience because I am an adopted mom. I have two boys I've ad- that my husband and I have adopted. And, you know, some people do sort of think of our families as differently, <laughs> I think. Given their reactions, it seems to me that they, they think of our, you know, that sort of family making as being substantially different. But, but many people treat us just like any other family. So, so I think, you know, it really, really varies. But, but one thing I know is that, you know, I think people do need to understand that, that at least the, you know, beginnings of those families are very different. And the transition of the children into the homes can be very difficult. 
And that's especially true that because most of the kids transitioning into homes at this point are older. They're, most adoptions are not of babies. They are of older children. Huh. Most, most kids in the care of the state right now in Canada are over the age of six. So and and that partially goes children. that that partially goes to what I was asking about because I I am adopted and I remember when my mm-hmm. well I don't remember I I have been reminded when my parents adopted <laughs> me there was a an adoption notice in the paper like a birth notice uh-huh. and uh-huh. I have never seen one of those in my adult life and it makes me think we do treat this somewhat differently but maybe it's because they're older now as opposed to infants yeah I think I think it is a very it's a different phenomenon than it was in the past. I mean, many, many, again, many of these children are older. Even, you know, now when people adopt children from overseas, they tend to be adopting older children. So infant adoption is, is much less common, and that, that is a different phenomenon. The, um, the psychological literature that we researched um, doesn't indicate that there are significant attachment problems when the child is adopted as an infant. But when they are older, those problems really do surface, and, and they can definitely fade over time. Um, but what we're arguing is that, that parents need that time to help those children attach to them. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Dr. Carolyn McLeod, a professor of philosophy and women's studies at Western University, also the lead author on a new report pointing out that in Canada, adoptive parents get less by a quarter, less leave time than birth parents. And just before the break, doctor, you were pointing out that most of the adoptions these days are of kids that are not infants anymore. They're five, six years old. What's happened to infant adoption? Why has it changed so much? I think that's a that's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that, Scott. <laughs> it's not something we we deal with in the report. Um, there just are many more children, you know, who are toddlers or older, uh, including teenagers. There there are a sizable number of children above the age of ten within the care of the state, and there are significant numbers of them. So so over thirty thousand children who are in in care who are eligible for adoption wow. at this point. Which, which seems to make your point wholeheartedly in this report, that if you have all these kids and you need homes and hopefully families for them, why are we not doing everything we can to make it as easy as possible instead of putting up roadblocks? Sure, and I, you know, you know, I do think some, some people find it very daunting when they you know, hear about people's experiences with adoption and how difficult it can be. I know in, in my case, both of my adoptions took three years to complete. Um, so you know, there are hurdles you, you take in Ontario, you take parenting classes, you do a home study, and then af- you know, after all of that, you, you have a shorter amount of paid leave before you have to go back to work. So, so it doesn't look like, you know, a great option <laughs> for many people, um, although I do think it is a great option. I mean, you know, I know in, in my case and in and many of the members of the adoption organizations that we've partnered with with this report will say it's, you know, an extremely fulfilling um, experience to adopt a child. And the, with the number you said of 30,000 roughly kids, I mean, I read something today that only about 2,800 were adopted last year. So we're, clearly, the, I mean, what you say, it's a positive thing, but it is difficult enough or daunting enough that not that many people are, are signing up. Now, the, inter- the other thing about this is, I was reading today that it's going to cost something like 12 to $20 million if we were to, to businesses and to the government, if we were to extend it to the full amount of time, to the year that birth parents get. I'm wondering, though, what the cost is to 
the province to the country if we don't do this. All this all this money in foster care and all these other kids that are now in the system, that's got to be costing us money too, though. For sure. And, you know, that's one thing we indicate in the report. We, we do outline what we think the cost to the government would be, to the federal government. And we estimate between 12 and 20 million, which, which is a very big range. Um, but, you know, interestingly, it's very hard to come up with good numbers to, to estimate the cost. We, we don't even know for sure how many placements of children happened last year. We, we did a lot of searching on our own and we came up with an estimate of about 2,400 children. Um, but we don't. That's just an estimate. So it's kind of shocking that we don't even know how many adoptions happened. Um, but, you know, if that number stays the same and we were to institute the attachment benefits that we recommend and do that right now, it would cost the government somewhere between 12 and $20 million. But again, which would be probably saved if they didn't have to be in the system. True. So, you know, we, we did do a survey of, of the parents and caregivers that we're concerned with. We surveyed almost a thousand people across the country. And, and some of them did say that if there were, was more parental leave, they would have, they would be more likely to adopt a, a sibling group of children or a child with complex needs. Mm. And, and these are children who, they are overrepresented within children and child welfare, and they tend to be harder to place than other children. So it, it is likely, if our survey is, is accurate, it is likely we'd see more placements of those children if we instituted these benefits. Dr. Carolyn McLeod from Western University, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Great and Thanks. great report. I mean, it's, it's troubling and it's fascinating, and I, I'm hoping people are paying attention. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for your interest, Scott. Uh, let me just say, uh, obviously, I mean, as an adopted person, my parents adopted me. This hits close to home. And many of you listening probably either are or have whatever. Uh, we have some friends as well. When I, when I was hearing this and reading this, and you think about the difficulty of this. We have the uh, a friends, a couple, uh, who adopted a lovely boy, a beautiful little boy who has severe cerebral palsy. And it's an enormous challenge what they've taken on. I mean, think about the idea that you are two professional people who have decided to complicate in a positive way, but sincerely to complicate your life by mixing in the health issues and the curveballs and the challenges and everything else. It is not an easy thing. And you think about the, I mean, these are people that you want to do. I think when you hear these stories, when you see people like this, and we all know somebody like this, probably maybe not to the exact degree, but we all know somebody like this. To me, these are the people we want to make things better for them, not make it, not turn to them and say, you know what, if you had just given birth to a kid, we'd give you extra time, but you, you're only adopting because my goodness, you look at this scenario, they did not only adopt. And the people we're talking about didn't, they are taking on what they love their son, but it is a massive, massive undertaking. And they are parents in every sense of the word. They did not give birth to this boy, but they are parents in every sense of the word, even if the child doesn't have their genes. And I mean, my goodness, there is no, in my mind, there is no conceivable reason they should be treated as less of parents by the government or by government agencies. If anything, they should be treated almost as more. Look what they chose to take on and the responsibility they chose to absorb. It is, it is remarkable. I, I'm hoping that this thing gets resolved and someone does something. I mean, at the very least, they should be treated equally. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring Don Robertson into the conversation. He is the owner and the operator of the Dundas Real McCoys. He is the guy behind Calm Choice Realty. He does all kinds of stuff in this city and in Dundas. And he's usually in here on Monday evening, but because we had no show, he got the day off. And I put him to work on Tuesday. So thanks for calling. Thanks for being available today, Don. Appreciate it. Scott, you're more than welcome, as always. i uh, got a couple things I want to get to. One of them is in your wheelhouse. One of them is a hockey thing. But before I do that, Yesterday, and I know a lot of people have talked about this today, but yesterday the Blue Jays had a game at home uh, for Victoria Day. Big crowd out, again, at home. They are a horrible team this year. They have only one thing going for them, and that's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And they decided that that was the day they were going to sit him for load management, to give him a rest. And a lot of people have been talking about this today, and I've come to a conclusion, Don, and you're a guy who's been in sports management in different levels of different teams for a while. I have come to a conclusion, because I couldn't figure this out at first. Mark Shapiro, the guy who's the president and basically the general manager of the Blue Jays, Mark Shapiro, I can only believe now, wants to be the villain. He wants to play the villain. There's no other explanation for this. He likes being the bad guy. Thoughts? Well, it's stupid. Well, it's stupid. I mean, they, they, you're right. They, they can hardly. They might go into extra innings with the Hamilton Cardinals this year, and when you can't draw fans and you're worried about your fan base and your attendance is down, it boggles my mind that Montoya, Montoya, right, their manager, Montoya, now, yep can't sit him in Chicago the day before or today. It makes absolutely no sense. It's not like uh, the Raptors are resting Leonard so he can play 51 minutes Sunday night. You know, there's, I mean, there's no chance they're making the playoffs. But, and they get a, like, the Monday Labor Day, or the, the Monday 24th of May weekend, or Victoria Day weekend, the 1st of July, to the Toronto Blue Jays are like late the Labor Day Classic for the Ticats. Yeah, I just I I mean you, you only get two or three times you can do the right thing, and so they're all for one. They're, well, they're they're like their team. It's first nuts. of all, I don't understand it. First of all, I don't believe for one moment that it was Charlie Montoyo, the manager, who made this call. This was above his head because because if it wasn't above his head, if it was his call, pardon me. Somebody from up above would have said, Charlie, come on, uh, put the beer down. It's, it's Victoria Day. We've got a full house here. Play the guy they're all coming to see. Somebody would have told him that. So this came from above him. But, uh, it sure the, didn't come to the marketing department. No, but I, I just have to believe now that Mark Shapiro, since coming to Toronto, has been so loathed by so many fans that he's almost taken it as his place now that he will either give a finger back to the fans this way, or he's just taken on the mantle and said, yeah, you know what? If they're going to make me the bad guy, I'll be the bad guy. I'll be the wrestling villain, and I'll make people mad at me all you want. I, I, I just don't see another explanation. Anyway, what you, uh-huh. you, you've been in sports, though, for a long time in that department, and, and as, a, as a president, as a GM, whatever, what role should entertainment play? Because you have to win, and you have to look after the bodies of your players and stuff, but surely entertainment and fan satisfaction factors in to some degree. 
in all professional sports, if you're always curious, and you know what I'm going to tell you, it always goes back to the money. And they're in the entertainment business. And winning is wonderful entertainment. But if you can't win, you still have to try and entertain them somehow. And that was an opportunity. He just, what did he hit, three or four home runs last week? Yep. He comes home from a road trip and they set him. I mean, it piles on the absurdity of setting the guy out. Sit him out today. I mean, I heard Montoya say, well, he didn't have a training camp and he played six days straight. Oh, the poor old bugger. He's, what is he, 20? Yeah. It's a grind. Really? It's a grind, Don. Holy cow. I mean, it's not Roger Clements at the end of the rope here. Play the guy because your marketing department is struggling. And if I'm the head of marketing and I go into Shapiro and say, well, thank you. You know, don't start blasting me when nobody's here, when you're doing stuff like that. Oh, this, I mean, from an organizational standpoint, or it's just the sheer arrogance of we know how to build a winner and we're going to do it the, whatever way we want and you're going to like it. Well, I, the fans don't like it much so far. We'll we saw with the um, load management. That's the the word of the of the year apparently around here with the Kawhi Leonard thing. For the most part, not near the end of the year, but in the first half of the year with Kawhi Leonard, the Raptors generally rested him on the road. And to me, more than anything, that's the sin here that the Blue Jays committed. You just came back from a road trip. You had an opportunity to rest him, to give him his day off when you weren't in front of your own fans. That's when you do it. As far as I'm concerned, unless you're on a four-week homestand, and they never have one of those, you play the guy every home game unless he's hurt, and if he has to sit for a game here or there, you do it on the road. Well, and, I mean, the other thing is the 24th of May weekend, 2-4 weekend, is kind of the official kickoff of summer. I think we may have had summer on the weekend that one nice day. But at least you have to acknowledge that that's what you're selling, and you better accommodate them. How many fans do you think, how many dads took their kids to the game that day for only one reason? I'm only taking them, uh, you know, to two games this year, and Vladdy just hit three or four home runs, and we're buying tickets, and I'm taking you down there. How many kids that they want to be generational fans are going, how come he's not playing? And what's the answer? And as, as a dad, how do you, how do you explain it? I mean, other than doesn't make any sense. I mean, I told you what I thought it was. I mean, and I, I would think that there's as always more people in my camp than the blue Jays higher archery, hierarchy trying to decide that this was a brilliant move. Holy cow. The other, uh, I read a bunch of stuff on Twitter yesterday. Twitter went nuts, as you would expect, because a lot of people, exactly what you described, went to the game not because they expected to see the Jays win, not because the Jays have a good team, solely to see maybe the Red Sox, but to see Guerrero. And many people's response to this is, I was going to buy tickets for other games down the road. I am now going to wait until that day and see if he's in the lineup. Well, Don, you know how sports works better than most people listening, at least the ticket selling. If you're waiting for people to buy the day of and you are then going to live or die on the whims of whether the weather is nice or whether there's something good on TV or whether they're feeling good or whether something comes up, you've just given away, probably with for the Blue Jays, probably thousands of tickets sold. 
Well, I can I can tell you one thing about selling tickets, and and you you know what we do in Dundas with the real McCoys, and you know I ran that minor pro team. You can't get those people back. Like you've lost that ticket sale. Like if they're if they're going to do exactly what you said, and that's what they're doing because they are not a juggernaut this year. So what opportunity? Okay, they had twenty four thousand yesterday. How many people are going to count on that again? They're going to. You're right. They're absolutely going to wait and say, "When is when is Vladdy going to play?" Because I don't trust you. Yeah, and and, and they, they haven't earned the trust either. And then, as I said, if it's okay, I'll wait and see if I want to go. You know what? There's a million things going on for most people in Toronto to distract you and make you decide. I, if I don't already have a ticket, I'm it's, I'm not going to go. Yeah, I. It makes. No sense, mostly from a marketing standpoint. I mean, they, you're never going to convince me, a kid that's 20 years old, pardon me, that played six games in a row needs a rest because he didn't have a training camp. You touched on something, though, and I'm going to make a note of this, and I'm, this is going to be a really interesting one. Last year, for reasons that remain inexplicable to me, because I really don't believe that the media relations people had any impact on the record of the team, the entire media relations department of the Blue Jays got sent home. They got fired. I'll be interested to see this year if attendance goes way, way down, if the guy in charge of ticket sales or a bunch of people in the office get told their jobs aren't there at the end of the year. And that, if that's the case, you point back to this weekend and say, sorry, who's to blame? It's, it's a great point by you because that's a, uh, this, this could be. The next marketing meeting, like any any young guy that's got any cojones is going to say, how do we fix this? That's how you end up being the marketing manager. you got to have the wherewithal to sit up in a meeting. I don't care. If I, if I joined their staff five minutes ago, I'm pretty mouthy. And we had a meeting tomorrow, I'd say, how do you expect us to do this? Why are they griping about attendance? They obviously don't care. Yeah, it's. It, I don't get it, uh, and a lot of people don't get it. But we'll see. Uh, maybe on Canada Day they'll sit him again. If they sit him on Canada Day, we will know for a fact that it's an intentional middle finger extended to the fans, <laughs> because that's the only other big day they're getting this year. Uh, Don, let me switch over to hockey for a minute. I know a lot of people have forgotten hockey is still being played. Uh, it's understandable. It's one of those things that when the Leafs are out and many of the teams that people follow are out, I mean, San Jose and St. Louis uh, are not exactly juggernauts fan-wise around these parts. I want to ask you this question, though. St. Louis Blues, early this year, before Christmas, were almost or maybe were in last place in the NHL. I mean, they were truly in dead last, I believe. They are now one win away from going to the Stanley Cup Finals, and the one thing that changed was that they brought up a goalie, Jordan Binnington, who has become the hottest goalie in hockey for the entire season. Does this prove absolutely to anyone who might otherwise think something different that the goalie is the most, in the NHL, the goalie is the most important and impactful position in all of sports? No, I would, uh, it, it's it's kind of like the old model, though, you know. You, he may not your, be your best, player but you can't win without him like you can't win with your backup which always i find amusing because to me that makes him your best player where are the boston bruins without tuka rask not playing you know, and for the toronto maple leaf fans 
the Toronto Maple Leafs changed their backup goaltender at the start of the playoffs. So what happens if Anderson goes down? I mean, if you if you think you can think all you want that Austin Matthews, I'm, you know, I'm taking a Toronto approach here, and and um, Marner are your best players, but I'm telling you, if Anderson doesn't play, if he gets hurt the last game of the regular season, any thought of winning a Stanley Cup generally goes out the window. And and, and to prove how effective a goaltender coming in late can be. For the old-timers listening, you'll remember Ken Dryden. Mm-hmm. And you will also remember Steve Penny Yep, for the Montreal Canadiens. Who, so when they come in and they stand on their head and take them to championships, you know, and it might be a one-off. And uh, to put it in a different perspective, Chris Contos, and I forget the other guy's name. Chris Contos come up when I think it was with L.A., scored like 18 playoff goals and had not scored 18 regular season goals. Uh, John Druce did the same thing in uh, New Jersey one year. They were calling him uh, Druce on the loose. So those guys were spectacular, but they all had great goaltending behind them. They didn't win because of those guys. It was just a big bonus. And they always talk about the third and fourth lines are always the teams that win it for you because you have expectations for your top two lines. So if your top two lines are firing on all cylinders, and the third and fourth line are making contributions, you still can't win with outstanding goaltending. Ken Dryden is an interesting one uh, because he did come in and he did win the Stanley Cup in his rookie year. I still... I still don't know how much credit. I was too young to remember it. I don't know how much credit Ken Dryden really gets or should get for that because the team around him was pretty flippin' awesome around that time. However, you mentioned Steve Penny. Uh, You could put Patrick Waugh in that case again for the Montreal Canadiens guys who came in and really dominated. I mean, they were the ones who made the difference. I look at Bennington right now with, with St. Louis. You don't put him in net. They're not even in the playoffs, let alone one win away from going to their first Stanley Cup finals in 50 years. And I know there's people who are going to argue that, no, a quarterback in football is way more important than a goalie. I uh, not after this year. I, I, uh, to me, it was a toss-up. Now I'm looking at it saying, you literally have no chance for success in elite hockey unless you're goalie. doesn't have to be great, but he has to be hot. Well, uh, one of the things I've always said is, in the playoffs, your goaltender has to be good enough to never cost you a game, and he's got to win you a game. You've got no right winning. Hmm. And, and that's happened. And he has done that on... He's had maybe one or two off games and that's not bad because they've they've won 11 yeah win five more you got to win 16 so he's won 11 and if you go by what i'm saying he's had a couple games he'd like to have back that's not bad and he hasn't cost them any games like he played poorly or not up to the standard that he has set what, I, I mean, the the argument, I, I'm trying to think of what other positions you could put into the category, and certainly quarterback would be there. Starting pitcher is absolutely in the discussion. But as far as team sports, I don't think there's any position in basketball that has the impact. I mean, you're really, as far as I can think of, it's and soccer goalie is not that impactful because there are so few shots on net. Uh, I, I think it's down to one of those three. 
and all of them are heavily impactful on the game. But boy, oh boy, you take the look over the last 30 years of Stanley Cup finals, Stanley Cup champions, and tell me who was the goalie who wasn't great when that championship was won? Detroit. And the guy's name just. Chris Osgood. Chris Osgood. They won a a couple Stanley Cups without maybe the best goalie in the league, but clearly the best defense and the most depth up front. So he's probably a prime example where he didn't cost them anything. He didn't steal any for them, but he he played well enough not to cost them games or a series. And the the only other position I can think of is whatever Kawhi Leonard plays. (laughs) Well, but again, it's not really a position. A it's, uh, so here's the funny part I about I agree. Hockey, clearly the, the, uh, the, the, the St. Louis goaler has proved that with a fabulous goaltender, you can go from last place to the, to the semifinals and in all probability, the finals, if you've got a great goaler. And the ironic part about this is they're talking over the last couple of days about, oh, there's a guy in their team named Schwartz who's one he's got one f- goal he needs one more goal and he will tie the club record for most goals in a playoff run with Brett Hall and he's he's had a terrific playoff he's had two hat tricks in these playoffs i mean it's just doing stuff that is remarkable and yet i'm he is being the one being talked about as the con smythe trophy favorite right now and i go back to this and i say you aren't even in the playoffs you are certainly not where you are without your goaltending and yet because he's being steady, if not totally spectacular, people are forgetting entirely about what Bennington is doing. Here's what you have to do to beat out a goal or to be the MVP in the playoffs. Billy McDougall, a former Real McCoy, in Cape Breton one year, when Cape Breton never lost a playoff game, had 52 points in 16 games. His teammate, a former, another former Real McCoy, Wayne Cowley, was 16-0 and in the playoffs. And we were sitting around having a beer after a game one night. He said, how did you make out in the MVP voting? He said, he said I didn't get one first place vote. Can you imagine that going 16-0 and and never got a vote? So it can happen, but something very spectacular otherwise has to happen. 52 points in 16 games is hard to beat. i got to let you go, but uh, just out of curiosity, um, you've now used the word goaler, I think, four times. When did you turn 117 years old? <laughs> I'm not 117. June 12th, I'll be 117. Oh, sorry. Yeah, goal. Every time I think, uh, when I hear the word goaler, I think of the old pictures of the guys who would only stand up and they held the stick like a regular player with their skinny cricket pads. Back in the day, back in the day, Don, when you were when you were refereeing and they played like that. You were a goaler. That's how long ago that was. No, I was a sieve. <laughs> Don Robertson, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for doing this. Have a good night. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.